0: Back to a somewhat regular schedule. We do not have another tour for many months. And uh, what better way to get back in the swing of things? Uh, right right around the silly time of year of April 1st as tackling America's opiate crisis. Uh, joining me today is my friend uh, Zachary Siegel. Uh, Zachary's work has been in New Republic, Nation, New York Magazine, New York Times Magazine, Vice Slate all over the place zach writes extensively about drug policy and specifically opiates and the opiate crisis exacerbated in the last 10 to 12 years uh zach how are you today
1: hey man uh yeah doing doing well all things considered uh grim topic but uh an important one i'm I'm glad to to be on talking about it
0: yeah no glad to have you um this is a, a pretty a pretty broad task but it seems like it, the since 2001 was really like the hinge point for opiates in America you really see like overdoses and usage go up a lot after that. Uh, can you give a brief history in the advances and explosion prescription that happened like right around after 9/11
1: yeah yeah it's a good place to start because yeah, this is truly a crisis that kind of epitomizes the destitution of everyday life in America in the twenty first century. Um, like looking looking back at at the history, it, it just kind of feels like this weird feeling like this was always going to happen. Like all those get rich quick and deregulatory schemes from basically the like the nineteen seventies onward. We're really just reaping what was so decades ago, and we're really getting our asses kicked by it today. And by 2001, Oxycontin was the most prescribed brand name drug for pain. And there's a lot of reasons why that happened. And by now, everybody knows the the name of the Sackler family who owned Purdue, the company that manufactured Oxycontin. And there's a kind of like standard issue story that Purdue was this master marketer and manipulator, that they tricked every doctor into believing that their drug, which contained oxycodone, wasn't really addictive. And they also tricked the FDA into getting basically a carte blanche deal to market this drug for all types of pain and tricking government regulators into granting them access to this billion dollar plus market. And it's really from that point where for the last 20 years or so, we've seen exponential rises in, in, in deaths and You know, parts of that like standard issue story are are definitely true, but parts of it really frustrate me because like, look who comes out of it looking kind of like hapless dupes. It's like the FDA, the DEA and and doctors. It's like you're telling me that in the early 2000s, doctors didn't know what oxycodone was or that it wasn't addictive. Oxycodone was invented by some German dudes in 1916. It's a very old drug and it's the sole active ingredient in Oxycontin and produce so-called innovation was just wrapping it in a fake extended release technology that could be licked off (laughs) and wiped on your (laughs) t-shirt. Like it didn't work. And so like I, I'm, Willing to bet that the first day oxycodone, OxyContin, hit shelves, that somebody crushed it and snorted it, and like, yeah, just from the jump, from the jump, it's incredible that this drug was like marketed as new when it's like a a very old, old drug, and and so yeah, the the early two thousands, it was just the FDA was captured by these corporations and the whole medical supply chain, you know, they're, they're the gatekeeper in it and they create the market. They decide what goes on the market and what doesn't and what's legal for doctors to prescribe and what isn't. And yeah, so, and then there's the DEA, which literally sets the manufacturing quota for these companies and gives them uh, the amount that they could produce. And so like at every step in the pharmaceutical and medical supply chain, there's tons of uh, government and hurdles and barriers between the product and the consumer, right? It's not like tobacco, like you can't walk up (laughs) to uh, a cashier and ask for a pack of uh you know, 10 30 milligram blues and 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 walk away with uh your oxycodone. Like that's just <laughs> it's not the system we have here. And so like it is absolutely just a fact in this story that it's not just Purdue and the Sacklers who are these greedy, evil uh actors. It's the government totally failing us uh <laughs> And and its people like uh, enabled to do the basic moral minimum duty uh, of like consumer protection, um, like that's that's really what the early two thousands looks like, and it, it, it's sort of frustrating that like these all these big blockbuster investigative books. And TV dramas like, like, like Dope Sick, you know, everyone sees the Sacklers as, as, as scumbags. And, you know, that's, that's fine. They are. But, like, the sources for these books and the heroes of these TV shows are <laughs> DEA agents and federal prosecutors. And they kind of pitch themselves as, like, the good guy regulator David fighting the greedy corporate Goliath. And uh, it's it, like, that's like, that's the kind of whitewash story we're getting 20 years after the fact. Um, and yeah, like some of the best writing on that really is like Terrence Ray from the Trillbilly podcast and writing in the baffler. Yeah. Like if you've read that piece, you know, just how sick and twisted and corrupt the response to. Uh, the opioid crisis in places like Kentucky, you know, really, really truly is. Um, yeah, but like it it, 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 it comes back to yeah. the medical supply chain and it just totally failing to uh, contain this.
0: I, I, in two ways, I've been disturbed by the rise of these sort of like uh, tragedy porn, opiate dramas and limited series. I mean... Uh, Disturbed because uh, this is another terrible thing that will be made, but further disturbed in the way that it's, oh, this is the official narrative of it. This is the this is the uh, equivalent of a limited hangout for the opiate crisis where there's just there's one group of bad actors, everyone else, like you said, from the FDA to individual doctors to everyone else were just they were just fooled they were fooled for twenty years straight uh not able to see what was going on in front of them they you know as as you said they uh just did not know the effects of these drugs that had existed for decades and decades long before they were born uh it's the this is the official story that they've arrived on, and could you talk a little bit about how the the there is an incentive by America's Sort of hobbling medical infrastructure to prescribe pills, especially in this time frame.
1: Yeah, like I, I think what what the main story kind of leaves out is that the main story really focuses on the kind of macro supply side of the story, and and uh, these big shifts in in policy and and the market, and what it really totally leaves out is the demand side, the human side, the side. Where you need to really wrestle with human desire for one thing, but then also, even yeah, why were doctors relying on this pill for so much pain, and and why was there so much pain in the first place, and and when you get to these uh, questions, that's where things really get messy and and really complicated and. The standard story kind of starts to break down, and 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 certainly, like by now, places like West Virginia, Kentucky, the kind of these deindustrialized zones are are considered the epicenter of 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 this problem. And if you look at the population of the people who live in these places and the people who were getting these opioids they were mostly middle-aged slash aging americans who for the past decades had really given their bodies to their labor these were people who actually did have real physical pain and a lot of people who had real emotional pain and if you know we know anything about opioids and and just drug use in general is that the reason why people get addicted and the reason why people like drugs is because that they work they they do a really really effective job of uh taking the edge off of physical pain and emotional pain and in my mind i don't even really like to separate those two like one isn't more valid than the other, and the fact that you look at these towns that were totally decimated by just the the opioid faucet turning on, yeah, look look at what happened there. Basically, good union jobs where someone could afford to have a house and a family and maybe even take some road trips and go on vacations, that became impossible. Those jobs left and what replaced them was basically two things. You had fast food and, and service work, or like healthcare, like home healthcare workers, or, you know, being an, an orderly in a hospital. Or if you're in a place like Kentucky, there was a massive prison boom where entire towns people either worked in the prison or they were living in the prison and it's 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 just another part of the kind of standard issue narrative that that we that the the kind of more more like like the capital L like liberal story just doesn't really contend with or dramatizes it in a totally like whitewashed way where uh, like never talking about NAFTA, that like people made these decisions and that like this, you know, didn't have to turn out this way. Uh, Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. They, they
0: avoid taking a holistic look at this thing that I think could be a very interesting thing to look at. Why do Americans, why did the, why did one of the most popular drugs, one of the most popular things to do, you know, just sit down and take pills. It was a drug, the only drug that doesn't require another activity or lead to other activities. The only drug that can allow someone who has had their lives destroyed to be able to sit with themselves. Why did that become the biggest drug for Americans? You know, after 2001, not biggest drug, like it's always going to be weed just because of ease, ease of access and price and everything. But as far as having a social impact on America, uh, definitely the biggest drug, and you know as as you point out, it becomes very big in these places that were hollowed out starting in the nineties, starting after NAFTA. and it where if the rule of thumb kind of is go to any place where life was taken away from, and you'll see increased use. This is true all over the Rust Belt, it's true, in so many industrialized places or deindustrialized places everywhere. Um, but it's the portrayal of, you know, users and specifically like these middle-aged ones in media and in fiction and in documentaries is like just these sort of like hapless hobbits that like they're like, they're eating a magical bean that they don't know what it is. They fully know what it is. They're taking this affirmative choice because what else is there in life anymore?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it, it, it's worth kind of dwelling on the point. Like really, the kind of experience of using an opioid. Like I always think about this line from William Burroughs. He's like describing a, like a an old heroin user. This is like in the the fifties. The guy just does his heroin and sits on his porch with a stack of old newspapers and magazines, and just sits there reading every word all day, right? Like. You are just comfortable with yourself wherever you are. And that can be very alluring for someone whose body and mind has been tortured, right?
0: Yeah. And yeah, it's people have said this is a nihilistic approach to take. But I've said in a country like this, it's inevitable that a lot of people are going to do this. No matter what you do, no matter what policy you take, even if you do like... Whatever ridiculous Trump thing of like, oh, we're not gonna allow any FedEx shipments from China because that's where the fentanyl comes from. People are going to do it no matter what in a country like this.
1: Yeah, I mean that that really gets back to continuing the story of the of the policy response to the early two thousands. So they, they they turn on the faucet and oxycodone is flooding and flooding and flooding. And then boom, in twenty ten the FDA is like, okay, Purdue, your drug is way too hot. There's way too much demand on the street. Overdoses are becoming visible, like in all of our metrics and mortality. And there's some rumbles in, in, in the media around uh, in the early 2000s about rising overdose deaths. And, and it's hitting middle class people. It's hitting white people. It's hitting... Right. These towns that didn't have a crack epidemic in, in the 80s and 90s. It's, it's it's hitting these supposedly pristine bucolic places where this shouldn't be happening. Like that's kind of the mobilizing the response to, quote unquote, do something about this. So what the FDA does is they go to Purdue and say, We're, like, you need to pull The original formula off the market, and we will give you the green light to put a new formula on, one that's allegedly abuse deterrent, meaning like it couldn't be crushed, it couldn't be snorted, it couldn't be diluted and injected. And so that came out in August 2010. And now, if you pull up any chart and look at the last 20 years of overdose data, In 2010, it looks like a nuclear bomb of heroin overdoses goes off. Like heroin overdoses were kind of steady and they would kind of bump up here and go down there. But in 2010, it's just a straight line up. And what the FDA policy wound up doing was basically creating a huge highway on-ramp into the illicit market. And so everybody who was using a pill that had at least a label on it, like they knew how many milligrams it was. They knew what its dose was and its contents and its purity and potency. All that was known. Now everybody went to the illicit market where they were left to navigate uh, a world of mystery powders and they had no idea what they were doing. And so this is when you see really truly like a turn and it we became uh really uh, enveloped in an overdose crisis it wasn't just opioids anymore it was heroin and uh benzodiazepine like just so much drug mixing was happening at this point um and then that's kind of always been the case where and if you go back to a lot of the old toxicology reports from the early 2000s it was almost always opioids and another drug that caused the the death proper
0: mm. um yeah so the the obama years sort of brought out what i've seen you term as opiate whack-a-mole where the you know, the fda would single out like individual pills or uh sometimes like injectable forms of opiates used in hospitals and going like, Hey, enough of that. That's one of the bad ones. And it seems like the, if you look at what happened as a result of this, this resulted in people who were using those to go on to street drugs. And that would be one thing, but you mentioned also in this post 2010 period that street supply was increasingly contaminated. And, you you brought up examples like that bag of heroin that was uh was put through a lab recently, where it's just there's no there's no actual opioid in it. There's no heroin. It's just a mix of like five or six insane different yeah. chemicals. What how how and when did this happen to like regular street drug supply?
1: Yeah. It, so after 2010, the the heroin market's booming, and. I would say around 2012, 2013, and especially in the East Coast, mainly the Northeast and, and in places like Philly, but then also like down in Florida, you see the emergence of of fentanyl and, and fentanyl analogs. And you know, fentanyl is used in anesthesia. Like it's like the number one drug used by anesthesiologists. It's very, very effective for for knocking you out. And and what happened in the illicit supply is that all the market incentives pointed to the emergence of a cheap synthetic uh, substitute for agricultural production. So if you think about producing heroin, you need a lot of arable land. You need to pay farmers. You need acres and acres and acres of, of, of poppy in order to produce enough heroin. And that became increasingly difficult to do for, for all kinds of reasons. Like Climate change is probably in, in the mix here. And, and also, it, it, it's just very easy to spot a gigantic p- poppy crop from a drone or from a helicopter. And so basically what, what happened was the heroin, the agriculturally produced heroin supply became taken over by illicit synthetic fentanyl production. And so basically the same thing that happened with meth, they, they stomped out all the, the precursors like Sudafed. And then what, what happened with meth? it turned to basically mass factory production, and so all these precursors for now, fentanyl could be thrown into a factory-style production, sent up north, and now you have a white powder that could be heroin, but instead has these ungodly potent synthetic analogs of fentanyl, and there's acetyl fentanyl or furanyl fentanyl, just like insane drugs that basically human beings have never used before ever, and shouldn't even exist and are not ever, have not ever been made or tested for human consumption and so that that really started to happen within the last what is it five, seven years where uh, fentanyl Has taken over. And since then, the overdose death rate has just maximally, exponentially uh, skyrocketed. It's we're now, so back when the the drug of choice was like Percocet or OxyContin, there were about 16 to 20,000 deaths attributed to those drugs back around, you know, 2007 and 2008. And, and, and that's a lot and, and, but what's happening now is sort of unimaginable. There's more than a hundred thousand overdose deaths now because the supply is just ungodly, uh, potent and contaminated. And, and this has just done so much to the the street market, like a, a bag of heroin. Yeah. In Chicago where I live used to cost $10. Now you can get a much more potent bag of fentanyl for $5 and that like the price has dropped and the, the potency has increased. And yeah, you mentioned that that bag that got sent through a lab, it it has uh, a veterinary tranquilizer in it called xylazine and this uh, causes skin lesions. Like it kills your skin tissue and leaves a, a black hole that will never heal on your body. It's like there aren't even words to really adequately explain the mess that we're in right now. And at every level, it's been decided by people that this is what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, there is. I mean, all throughout this, from you know the post-2001 era till now, there's a very grim musicality to it all. Like, you know, you mentioned how post-industrialization, the only centers of jobs in a lot of these communities became uh, health, like the healthcare industry, where it, the one thing that's always growing in America uh, prisons and how well both those things fit in with like over over prescribing that just pulling the rug on opiates. They both both completely fill the precursor and then the consequence of doing that. And now with uh, heroin demand skyrocketing after the rug pull, fentanyl is kind of like the perfect drug for this stage of America, uh, of life in America, because it's like it, it is the drug equivalent of working for fucking DoorDash. You know, with, with, with heroin, people describe a sort of in the best cases, a standardization of experience and you kind of know what you're going to get per amount even if you've been using for like 20 years there are you know i definitely don't recommend people do this but there are were more, more functional heroin addicts that's not really as possible with fentanyl because just getting it from the sources that people get it from you don't really know what you're getting you don't know if you're getting something that's sort of lab quality you don't know if you're getting something that's you know made in a fucking bathtub and even if you do get the lab quality one, it has a non-standard outcome with you every time. And I, I read an article where a, a user is described as being dependent on fentanyl, and it makes it so that she, you know, suboxin doesn't work for her withdrawals, and that just the experience of doing it, you know, she'll do it and then. In two hours, she'll have to worry about getting more, so she doesn't crash and withdraw and just go through hell. And th- yeah, there's this again, yeah, awful musicality of every drug fitting every era of American life that it's in.
1: Yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not a, a drug warrior hawk by any means, but I really, truly, at this point, believe that fentanyl. The emergence of fentanyl on the street and taking over heroin has just been a complete catastrophe. Um, yeah, like you said, fentanyl it only lasts a few hours, and whereas heroin had a much longer half life, someone could be f- relatively functional on it. They they could do some in the morning, do some in the afternoon, and maybe drift off to sleep and and have some again for the morning. Now, with fentanyl, you kind of need to dose every couple hours. And then the sick and pernicious part of fentanyl is that it's very very lipid soluble, which means over time it gets stored in your fat in your body. And so after prolonged use, there is just always fentanyl inside you which makes it damn near impossible to uh, transition out of the market and get onto a medication like suboxone and it's kind of complicated you need to know all this shit about the brain but to make it simple, if you take suboxone while you still have fentanyl inside of you, you are going to experience a hellish withdrawal whatever the withdrawal of heroin is and you know it's like diarrhea and flu symptoms and feels like there's like ants in your skin and you're itchy and you can't sleep times that by a million and that's what happens when you try to take suboxone after coming off of fentanyl it could take days or a week or even longer for the fentanyl in your fat to fully clear itself and this has just made it yet people are trapped like at this point in in our current situation people are trapped there there's no way out
0: yeah um in 2016 i noticed there was a lot of hay being made of this issue specifically by trump people this was a big thing for trump people because you know they were running against hillary clinton and they very successfully associated her and the clintons with nafta which is obviously quite fair but they would they trump surrogates online especially would bring up like the opiate epidemic raging through you know namely white america this has been uh it's affected everyone but it has it's definitely been more deadly for middle and poor middle class and poor white people um i was kind of interested in watching it at the time i of course never had high hopes for it because you know what National politician drug policy is good, but I was kind of I was kind of interested by it being this very big issue that was kind of in the forefront of a lot of spaces. I do remember Obama talking about it, and not much being done except opiate whack-a-mole. And uh, all my fears seem to be pretty well founded because the any change in policy under Trump just seemed to go more towards. You know, finding a guy who has fifty pills that he might he might be selling, he might be using, probably half and half, you most of the time, and you know him getting twenty five to life in a Fed case. These um, this sort of like treatment at gunpoint by way of courts that has been bandied about. Can you talk a little bit about the uh post twenty seventeen, uh American government's uh set of policies in the crisis
1: yeah i mean what what, what's really irked me about a lot of the the politicians and then what appears in a lot of the press is like uh we learned our lessons from the 80s and 90s drug war like we are going to do something different it's called a public health approach like that's mostly what what people hear Even cops and uh, high-ranking police chiefs and law enforcement officials say, uh, quote, we can't arrest our way out of this. And that there's uh, very much in a bipartisan fashion, a synthesis between the public safety set, which is kind of a euphemism for law enforcement and cops, with the public health set which is like epidemiologists and doctors and uh treatment and, and things like that and so uh what what we're in now is is really the, the yeah the kind of perfect synthesis of these two forms where the uh public health approach is very much still punitive and and coercive on the the users and then there's this whole other kind of surveillance aspect to it where the pill mills in places like Florida that that were just cranking uh, prescriptions out and, and flooding streets with, with pills, all that got shut down with the invention of prescription drug monitoring programs, which basically every single state has some version of this where doctors' prescriptions for controlled substances are... Uh, basically tightly monitored and they're going to a centralized database. And so uh, a local cop or DE agent can kind of query this database and look for doctors that are prescribing uh, at you know some threshold above their peers and they can be labeled like excessive over prescribers and then their office gets raided or they query the system looking for users and doctor shoppers, people who see a bunch of doctors and get a bunch of prescriptions. So you have just so many ways in which the prescription pharmaceutical legal supply has been restricted and heavily enforced and doctors are being prosecuted and uh, doctor shoppers, AKA people who are probably really sick and need a lot of health care are, are getting uh, yeah cases so so that that's happening on 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 one end and then there's basically a a, a huge drug court system this totally separate system for uh, treatment and law enforcement kind of combined where uh, maybe you catch a case you get... A possession charge and if you uh, abide by the drug court rules which are set by a judge then yeah maybe your uh, case will be dropped but it's so strenuous to to go through this process that basically demands perfect abstinence um, like addiction is very hard to, to treat and people are going to relapse They're going to use even if they're very earnest and clear-eyed about wanting to be in recovery and stay sober there's going to be slips like people are human people are going to make mistakes it's very hard to just uh you know snap your fingers and and kick and and never use again like that's just not how any of this works and if you basically yeah drop dirty uh, drop dirty urine at any point in this process, you're going to jail. And the the sick thing is that.
0: <laughs> or you're probably going to do like the same drugs, but far worse even than what's on the streets.
1: Yeah. Well. Or, or you'll withdraw in jail and the nurses won't help you. And the guards will laugh at you and you'll die from dehydration. Like that, that happens all the time. Something totally preventable and needless suddenly becomes deadly in, in a jail or prison. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it, like, like I said, people really are, are truly trapped. And like, there does, there doesn't really seem like, uh, any exit ramp out of this situation and, and like the best way to treat opioid use disorder. And, and people don't like to hear this and probably Out of some kind of like Protestant ethic, but it's to prescribe people opioids. Like that's the best way. Suboxone, methadone, these are opioid medications, and they offer somebody who is habituated to opioids a legal, regulated, safe dose that they could take every day and completely function on. Um, but uh, yeah, like in, in, in America, especially this is looked at as evil or a crutch or uh, a, a cheat code because the person didn't didn't suffer, didn't suffer enough. Um, it's it, like this. Th- these medications are totally, totally over regulated and very hard to access. And and now with fentanyl, they don't even work that good. And we need new ones and we need better ones.
0: Yeah. I mean that a lot of the conservative sphere people who were like pretend had one very tough year of pretending to care about the opioid crisis in 2016 because they could pin it on on uh, the Clintons. They have instantly turned around and you know made hay out of any harm reduction program that's happening anywhere in America. As you know, the, it instantly goes back to 1985 where you're going, oh, Democrats are giving drugs to people. I wish. I wish that was happening more. There would be tens of thousands of people who are still alive. Literally, like, I I remember there was something I retweeted from you a while ago about, yeah, opiate whack-a-mole. And someone replied to me, one of my uh, thousands of bad suppliers, goes, oh, so, so should we just do nothing? And it's like, if we had done nothing starting in 2012, hundreds of thousands of people would still be alive. Like it or not. I mean, it's... Yeah, everyone wants a solution, but only one that makes them feel good.
1: Yeah, and and that that's what I've learned reporting on this stuff for the past five, ten years or so. Like being in the trenches, it, it's it's a world of moral and ethical gray areas, and like, yeah, some stuff is uh you know going to make p- people offended, but we don't legislate based on someone's personal preferences. It's like, if you don't like abortion, sorry, like it it has to happen. Uh, and with, with harm reduction, people constantly just replied to it saying, this is enabling, this is condoning drug use. Uh, they, they think syringe programs somehow lead to worse outcomes. And it's like, do you want someone to, die from HIV like what do you want more people to get hepatitis C uh, like what it, the the arguments against it become insane and 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 the, the that's just like where the, the the kind of cruelty is now like the there was a measly 30 million dollars set aside by the federal government to fund syringe programs that that give users, sterile injection equipment and some of those kits may also contain uh, little glass pipes for for people to to smoke meth or crack or even fentanyl out of and everyone went apopleptic because suddenly now the Democrats are distributing crack pipes and uh in the name of racial justice they're they're, they're giving people crack pipes and that was that was the line. And the, the the Biden the Biden White House caved instantly folded.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely pathetic. And I think that if you're looking at, at this from a metric of deaths, overdoses, um just life for people who know addicts, for people who are addicts, um, people who live in these areas, these programs post-2010 have been complete and utter failures, but I don't think they' that's their actual goal. I think that um, I don't know I kind of I kind of look at the opiate crisis you know in in these last 12 years and the sort of resurgence of violence uh, uh, of specifically gun- related homicides in American cities. I don't look at them as related, but I look at them as both consequences of a very similar policy. And that policy goes all the way from municipal to the federal level. And it is, OK, well, we don't really want to stop this because, you know, yeah, then people will go, oh, you're giving out crack pipes or you're you're being soft on crime or whatever the line is. on the actual set of solutions to this problem or the solutions are so broad ranging and have to be so systemically applied that we just we can't do them. There is no political solution to this. So our preferred outcome is not that this stops because that's impossible or not even to reduce it because how how possible is that even? It's to relegate all of this into being out of sight, out of mind. People do not, voting people do not see this or experience this in any way except for what they read online. And I think with gun violence, that's definitely been the case. There has been a very successful policy of relegating gang turf wars and retribution and counter-retribution far out of the way of where any voting person lives, even though they can always bring it up to fear monger or do whatever they want with it. Uh, As long as it is not happening to them, the policy is success, no matter how many people die. And with, uh, with, drugs with overdoses and opiates specifically. I, I saw something interesting you mentioned in an article that you know heroin use for all the increase in overdoses heroin use is kind of flat there is a decline in growth among young users and it kind of hit me that I, I think the this is actually the policy is just to like kill off any remaining like middle aged and older users and hope that there aren't as many new ones that come into play I, I no one would outright say that. Well, maybe now they would. There aren't a lot of uh, there isn't a lot of subtext left in American life. But that uh, if I had to identify what the actual policy goal is here, I would have to say that, and I would obviously say that, foregoing even that this is like you know a grave moral wrong, an insane act, that it won't work because as we stated near the beginning, I think people are always going to do these things in america it's it's that's just what it is unfortunately
1: yeah i mean i i think it's the same policy we, we now are uh seeing play out with covid where just let the virus run its course let the disease run loose uh it's only going to affect the, the 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 most marginalized or in other words the weakest among us um and the, yeah, the grimmest outcome and the one that seems quite likely to be where we're headed is the overdose crisis will, will run its course. And if, say, there's 2 million active injection drug users living in America now, and there's more than 100,000 of them dying every year, well, how much longer can this go on for before the population is wiped out? Like, that's unconscionable, but yeah, it's happening.
0: Yeah, no, that is the only solution to these problems in America anymore, is just hope that you run out of people that the problem is happening to. And, of course, all along the way was completely avoidable, every step of it. I mean, I, I, um, I've um, seen you and other people bring up that... um. The reason that a lot of these pills were prescribed in the first place was that the American healthcare system, specifically health insurance, would rather you know pay for a very cheap pill than pay for any course of treatment that was avoidable. Um, the the overprescription that took a lot more bad actors than just the Sacklers that was avoidable. Um, the FDA, how they they conducted themselves until about 2012, very avoidable. The whack-a-mole that's led to people doing this completely tainted street supply that was not enough to meet the demand of people who were, had the, had the rug of their drug of choice pulled from them, that, that could have not happened. And now any deaths that happened from people using dirty needles, people from people not having safe sites to shoot up, uh, it, it could all be avoided. But, when it's all said and done, I mean, none of the authors of the post twenty twelve policy, they'll, I mean, they'll go in and out of the pharmaceutical industry and back into like the being the drugs czar and whatever administration. Again, it'll keep happening. no one's, no one even attaches the names and faces of the originators of the these shitty policies to the people. No one even really pays attention. This is just like a problem you bring up every few years because you can pin it on one candidate or one set of bad actors when really it just, it's kind of everything and it's every, every part of our system contributed to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. I mean, the, the federal drug policy, it's really uh, kind of a political backwater. Like it's not a prestigious position to be, The drugs are. It's not even a cabinet position anymore. So, like, yeah, it doesn't get much coverage, doesn't really get talked about. I get all these press releases from the ONDCP, which is the Office of National Drug Control Policy, kind of boosting and touting all the the things they're doing to tackle this problem. And nothing that's happening right now is going to make a dent in this. And it's, uh, yeah, like, we're even at the point now, I think, where it's not even people with uh, long-term severe drug addiction per se who are dying. It's the, the West Point cadets who went on spring break in Florida and bought a bag of cocaine, but it turned out to be fentanyl. And now they're all, yes, like, face down having overdoses and they need uh, Narcan to, to to get revived. It's like it's it's some kid who thinks he's taking a Xanax in high school, but that pill is counterfeit, and now it's fentanyl. And so, like the more that that's happening, it's it's gonna boomerang into more. I think repressive hawkish policies where you know this thirty year old kid in. <laughs> guy in in mississippi just got a 120 year prison sentence for for having uh counterfeit fentanyl pills caught on him you know it's like that's that's where this is going
0: the the final thing just on kind of a lighter note is me and you have both enjoyed the cop stuff (laughs) just i've seen it since 2013 i think that's about when it started of you know, they raid a drug lab or what they call as a drug lab. Really, they're just finding like 50 perk 30s that are really just fent pills, someone pill pressed into uh, and passing out and saying they had a fentanyl overdose from inhaling the air around them, like hosing each other down in hazmat suits, giving each other Narcan. Um, I've always thought this was very funny. I mean, I think everyone does. And I was kind of thinking like, well, you know, why do they do this? And I think the immediate answers are like, they're kind of obvious to me. You know, cops like to overinflate the level of danger they're exposed to. It makes a pretty mundane thing of a like drug bust where you don't find anyone seem suddenly seem exciting and dangerous. But uh, after this conversation, maybe they have kind of a dual purpose. I mean, if you like fentanyl, is terrible and it's been responsible for the deaths of tens, if not hundreds of thousands, as it's replaced other pre-existing drugs. Um, but I think this like overinflation of the type of threat it poses and how it just—if you touch it, it just instantly kills you. I think it's like it sort of characterizes drug users then as like not human, right? Like okay, if these brave cops have to be like hosed down and given narcan and CPR for just like being around it for letting like a little dust from a packet touch their skin, then the guys using this, they have to be like hollows from Dark Souls.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, it's it, it has been absurd to watch the inflated totally bonkers threat that that cops see fentanyl as but yeah like that actually does have really very visible downstream consequences on the users for for one if you think you're going to overdose by giving cpr to someone who just had a fentanyl overdose then you're not going to help this person for sure for one thing but then also yeah it 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 falls back on to to users and and it, it, and it in a in a really weird way it's like the it's not the users who are at risk of of dying from overdoses from this it's the it's it's the cops who are trying to save them like they're the ones who are who are who are really at risk and it's <laughs> the there's all kinds of like uh, I think, like, psychological reasons why wh- why this is happening. Like, there's, like, the, the kind of classic conversion disorder stuff. But also, just if you're told every single day in by your captain or in, like, memos and briefs from the DEA that touching fentanyl is going to kill you, and then you're on the scene where there's, like, a speck of fentanyl dust on your uniform you're going to freak out like you're just having a panic attack like and like something very real is is happening to these cops and it's it's panic like they're they're scared and but there there's no way that in the the public that they can express that like these are the these are the tough guys right you know it, it can't be a panic attack it has to be an overdose yeah
0: i think that's also true um well, you've you've written on this topic more than anyone I really know. Uh, I, I consider myself, like, pretty well acquainted with it, but I've, I mean, I've really, like, learned a lot from your writing. But kind of, if you had your way and the American system wasn't what it was, where any type of, like, structural change is so difficult, if you, basically, if you were drug czar and you had, like, a little more power than the drug czar actually does, what would your policy be? Like, from the federal level on down to making, you know, state and municipal level, level recommendations.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. My If I had a magic wand, I mean, like, it, it, the, the first things I would do are barely even, like, drug-related. It's like, let's get, like, a jobs guarantee. Like, like people need something to fucking do with their life, right? Like, mm. how about do the green new deal and completely overhaul the infrastructure of this country. And guess what you need to do to do that? Hire a bunch of workers, like give people something to fucking do. Give people jobs. Like that has nothing to do with, with drugs, but has everything to do with just somebody's basic existence in this country. Like people need something to do that, uh, is that gives them a purpose and and dignity and it's like I'm doing like the 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 Sherrod Brown dignity and work thing here but I think it's like very true like people like need something to do that that makes them feel worthy and 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 valuable and 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 dignified um and then obviously like just give everybody healthcare for fuck's sake like single payer healthcare or whatever kind of system would would ensure that just everybody has at least, like, a, 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 a community health slash doctor's office in the place that, that they live. I mean, like, we have no public health infrastructure in this country at all. And, like, like mm-hmm. I've heard you say it a million times. Like, nobody even has, like, a primary doctor anymore. Um, so, like, you know, those are just, like, s- such basic things that, that our government has to do. And then, like, more on, like, the, the drug policy side, what seems to be necessary at this point is everyone who is trapped in this horrific cage that fentanyl has created, they need a, an exit ramp. Like, they need a way out. And for a lot of these people, they're going to need uh, like basically, what 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 the Swiss did, like there's the Swiss model is prescription heroin. Like people can go to a place where they can inject actual pharmaceutical grade, regulated heroin. Like for a lot of people, they'll need that to at least get off the the treadmill that they've been running on. And then once someone's in that place. Then they can transition to, you know, maybe something like methadone or or suboxone or or some other replacement drug if they want to. And and the thing about opiates is, like, once your body is used to them and tolerates them, you can basically, like, drive a car and have a family and live your life with an opioid in your system every day if you want. And, you know, Burroughs lived to be, like, 91 years old. The guy did... (laughs) obvious every single day of his life um yeah
0: allegedly bob dylan yeah. do people say that bob dylan is a functional opium yeah, user I mean, I, or I, heroin I user totally, rather
1: totally believe that and i he he's got to like share his supply i mean like geez um but <laughs> so so like those are the things and then like like new york just set these up uh, injection sites like people are dying because they're alone and like Every single Mm. opioid overdose death is preventable because of naloxone. Like it instantly takes the opioid off the receptor and gives people another chance at life. They can breathe again because of this drug. It's a miracle. And yet it's still a prescription drug, still very much hard to access. It's nowhere near where it needs to be. So, like, why isn't that over the counter at this point? Like, it should be in every first aid kit. You should be able to, like, buy it at the impulse purchase next to the chapstick at Walgreens. um. And then, like, short of just, like, a full-on legalized regulated supply, like, I, I just think the, the situation with, with the street drug supply for cocaine users or anyone buying a pill on the street, it's, like, all of these things are so dangerous now because the pharmaceutical regulated legal supply got so restricted. Like, like you said, people are going to always do drugs. There, there's never been a drug-free society ever. And once you kind of metabolize that fact, what follows from there is make it safe do education around it, tell people what drugs to mix and not mix. Like we just need a, a, a total re-education because all we've had are dare officers and just say no and zero tolerance. And this is where it's, it's gotten us. So, you know, there, there's a million things I would love to see happen. And all that's happening now is these, underfunded local harm reduction programs like with the weight of the world on their shoulders trying to save lives and uh, like it would be great if it were seen as like valuable community service to volunteer at your local syringe program or help distribute naloxone or volunteer at a injection site (laughs) <laughs> Those things are like, in a lot of states, deemed illegal still. So yeah, you know, there's there's just so many things we we could do. And what I love about covering this is like I've met, interviewed, and and talked with, uh, yeah, just all these people who have really, really, really good ideas. Who a lot of them are are addicted to drugs and know exactly what they need to survive. And nobody listens to them. Nobody takes them seriously. But. Everything I just said like comes from them. like it's their idea.
0: Well, uh, Zach, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure that uh, people are really gonna appreciate this. I'm glad that uh, we finally got to do an episode sort of dedicated to this. It's been a long time coming. Uh, where can people find your work?
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, I'm really glad that we got to have this talk. So on, on, on Twitter, I'm tweeting too much at Zach Wright's stuff. Um and then my friend Tana and me we started a Substack where we kind of have fun making fun of prosecutors and cops uh and debunking their their bullshit rhetoric about drugs and crime so that's uh substance we just started a Substack and you can find us there and it's on my Twitter and that, that's really where I'm at these days and we will
0: we'll put links to all of that in the description of the episode. Uh Zach, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Felix. This this was great. I feel-